Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman. We began in part one with a discussion of crucial conversations. What do you do when the stakes are high and emotions are becoming heated? How do you keep the dialogue going and how do you maintain a good relationship? And that brought us last time to the question of what is a relationship? That was a fascinating discussion and it brought us to emotions, because often when you're in a really heated discussion, you can think, well, it's all well and good to think about, you know, crucial conversations and how you want to maintain the dialogue and all of that. But, you know, emotions can just really get in the way. And of course, that brought us to a great, great discussion of what emotions are, you know, that they're not a separate system, but that emotions are very much, they're they're diagnostic, that they track contingencies. So when you're feeling, I don't know, angry or grumpy, you want to ask, where is the aversive stimulus coming from that's making me feel this way? And then that opens up the possibility of doing something about it, of making choices about how you can change things so it doesn't ruin your day. This brought us to a discussion of the hierarchy of behavior change procedures. In both parts one and two, we've been talking about the hierarchy as though everybody is familiar with it. But in case you've been scratching your head wondering, what in the world are they talking about? I'll refer you to two articles that Susan has written about the hierarchy. You can find them in her website, behaviorworks.org. The first is entitled, What's Wrong with This Picture? Effectiveness is Not Enough. It was written in 2010, and the purpose was to help guide animal handlers in their decision-making process. So instead of going straight to punishment, which is the option many of us were taught in the horse world, your horse bites you. What do you do? You smack him hard. And sadly, that's the kind of advice that you often get when you're in a barn full of, of other horse people and your horse is biting at you. So the hierarchy of behavior change procedures begins with the most positive, least intrusive interventions. So you're not going to be smacking your horse at least not not as the first option. And in case you're wondering, intrusiveness refers to the amount of control that the learner has. So Susan in the articles illustrates the concept with a great graphic. She has the image of a car driving along a road, and there are six exits branching off to the side. The first exit, meaning the first things you would consider when you are thinking about how you're going to change a behavior, the the first things you consider would be distant antecedents, 
meaning that you're going to address medical conditions, nutritional needs, or any physical environmental variables that contribute to the behavior that you're wanting to modify. The second exit are the antecedent arrangements. And the third is positive reinforcement. The fourth exit has a speed bump just before you start down this path. And the speed bump is there to slow you down and to get you to consider the previous options yet again before you start looking in this direction. And, and this fourth exit takes you to differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors. The fifth exit has an even bigger speed bump and a yield sign in front of it. And this exit takes you to extinction, negative reinforcement, and negative punishment. And the sixth exit has a speed bump, a stop sign, and a traffic barrier in front of it. And this exit takes you to the use of positive punishment. Now, there are some trainers who have argued that positive punishment doesn't belong on the hierarchy. But Susan makes the point that the speed bump and the stop sign and the traffic barrier are there to really make a point. They're to, to say, we're not going to take positive punishment completely off the table. There might be a situation in which this really is the, the option that you need to explore. But if you do decide to go down this path, it is only because other procedures have not worked. And you've really paid attention to that speed bump and the traffic barrier and the stop sign, which means that you've stepped away from your learner, you've consulted with professionals, and you've explored the previous options. And that means that the use of positive punishment is going to be extremely rare. In fact, it will be so rare that we really don't need to worry about it. The other eggs that created problems was the fifth one that took you to extinction, negative reinforcement, and negative punishment. And I'm, I'm actually one of the people who always struggled with this grouping. If we are equating negative reinforcement with escalating pressure, you know, ear pinches in dogs, sharp spurs in horses, then I want much more than a speed bump and a yield sign. I want the traffic barrier, the stop sign, and an enormous speed bump. But negative reinforcement in particular has so many nuances to it that I'm not comfortable lumping it all into one basket. My apologies for the mixed metaphor here. We've got roadways and baskets and all the rest of it. But the point is that negative reinforcement is much too complex for it to sit all in one lump, all in one exit with the speed bumps in front of it. So it's discussions like this that led Susan to revisit the hierarchy in an article that she wrote in 2020 called Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive Principle, Improving Animal Welfare and Honing Trainer Skills. You can find the article on her website, behaviorworks.org. And I won't try to summarize the article here, 
because I know you're eager to get back to the conversation with Susan. So last week, we ended with a discussion of how important it is to look at the context in which new ideas emerge. And we're going to pick up with a quick review of the points that Susan was making. And then we're going to jump into a really, really fascinating discussion of negative reinforcement. So here we go. Have fun. That's true. I think that behavior analysis is also looking at where we came from, where we were, that was the improvement and what our next improvements are. And that's the good thing. And when I wrote the hierarchy, it was Ken Ramirez said on a video um, Zoom talk, he said when he first read it, it was like the skies open and the angels came down to earth, which was nice and fun to hear. That was the immediate, it was like very thirsty people trying to have the standardization to give them the leverage to say blanket positive punishment should be so rare as to practically be not necessary. The tiniest part with the biggest speed bump and the strongest stop sign. It was a huge step away from what people were arguing about positive reinforcement being too slow. We've shown that's not the case. Positive reinforcement is going to produce addicts with no intrinsic reinforcement strength. That is shown not to be true. So in some ways, I think about the context in which I delivered this homely little hierarchy, which I've always talked about it as. And so it was a big leap away from where we came from. But now recent criticism has me looking at it again and talking with people, my mentors and people who are very dedicated to its usefulness and rake over those those coals to see if there's something important. And I did list the main disagreements, the criticisms, or as you wanted to say, the questions, but they've come as criticisms and I'm, I'm bold that way. I don't mind. Um, You know, criticism is necessary for the self-correcting science, the self-correcting individual. I, 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 I welcome the thought that it takes to say, is this really where we want to be now? even if we acknowledge it's where we want it to be then. I'm open to all of that discussion and always have been and always have presented it that way is, you know, this is, this is an idea. I'm putting it into the, into the conversation and, and then let's see where it holds up and it doesn't. It was filling such a hole, the data tell us, it was filling such a hole that there wasn't even a lot of criticism or discussion originally. It was just like, finally, somebody had given us something we can, we can hold on to, to move in our positive reinforcement direction. But now, 20 something years later, we can take a look at it and say, are we going to, do we need to discuss ways that we're now ready to move forward and make changes. And that's why I put those criticisms in the new article called Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive 
procedure and um, people can read what the criticisms are there. And they're a little bit funny because they, they're, some of them come from very um, influential people and they're, and they're diametrically opposed. We've got some people who say negative reinforcement should be with positive reinforcement, should be just reinforcement. I think Jesus would be one of those people. And then we've got um, Gene Donaldson, on the other hand, who says, it's too low. And I say, but Jeannie, it's, it's right under <laughs> positive punishment. She says, it's still too low. It should be in with punishment. So we need to navigate this. And then you would have me saying, no, no, <laughs> negative, you know, because <laughs> negative reinforcement is not black and white. It's not, it's not all, Nothing's it's not all black and white. And, and, um, Hanging from leaves. Yeah. But, but what do you say? What do you say when people say if a behavior is maintained by negative reinforcement, using positive reinforcement will not be very efficient, not be very um, what's the other word in English that looks effective? Yeah, I would ask them for the data. I know of no such data that says that what I have is a lot of data that says that we are all living on the planet very flexible, and that we are evolutionarily, genetically designed to use behavior, to operate on the environment, to expose reinforcers, positive reinforcers over escape reinforcers, and to escape aversive stimuli. You know, some, some, there has been a, one person did a really lovely job of criticizing, not really criticizing, it was bringing to the fore the age old debate among behavior analysts and everybody else in psychology, the notion of free will. Do we do animals really have control when they're in captivity? Um, are they really empowered? And they were using these words with a sort of satirical lilt to their voice, like a sarcastic lilt. Um, and my response as I listened to it, and I hope to be able to have a discussion with curiosity between us with this person is, if you understand the evolutionary perspective, how behavior evolved and why it evolved, you wouldn't be lilting sarcastically when you use these words that are so precious to our evolutionary history. Eyes are to see, ears are to hear, legs are to walk, behavior is to operate on the environment. Operate for what end? To get positive reinforcement forcers and to escape and remove, that's the negative reinforcement part, escape, avoid, and to, and to bury aversive stimuli. If that isn't why behavior evolved, what has behavior evolved for? Can we not imagine a, a different planet that doesn't have the behavioral needs of an ever-changing environment such that learning evolves in order for us to control our outcomes? So I think, humbly, I submit, that's what's missing in that argument is that Skinner was not just coming up with a, a, a nonsense word when he came up with the word operant. We are operators. That is suggestive of controllers 
right? The bus operator, the train operator, the operator of the anesthesia, the operator. We're operators. What allows us to operate on the environment? Millennia of evolutionary history that produced this behaving, flexibly behaving organism. So if we go back to the hierarchy for a moment, I have always opened the door to discussion about revising it based on its effectiveness as a guideline. That's in both articles. It's in the IAABC footnote that is attached to the graphic where they use it. I recommend that your audience just um, type in IAABC hierarchy and you'll see the appendage there. So it's always been in my dissemination that this was uh, an idea ready to be iterated. And now that I look at it with 2020 vision versus 1997 vision, I have to consider whether or not we want to highlight that there are uses of negative reinforcement that don't hurt animals. And then there are uses of negative reinforcement that hurt animals, hurt learners. And is that continuum, or it, I don't even think it's a continuum. The more that I think about it, the more I think of it as two different continua mm -hmm. on which mm -hmm. escape, avoidance, and delay fall. And if I were to articulate what the different continua are, it would be one on which we as the agent of the antecedents deliver an aversive stimulus, which forces the animal to run as with using a hose to get the baboons to shift into the in interior enclosure. And then a separate continuum which is the animal's learning history has taught it to escape these stimuli, like let's say humans. And so we acknowledge, as I've said, you know, it's been characteristic of my teaching as an anti-authoritarian person, every animal has a right to say no. That's just another way of saying every animal has a right to escape, avoid, or delay something in the antecedent. So we take those animals who are very already learned that their relationship with particular stimuli is an escape relationship. We allow them to escape and we use a bundle of procedures that teaches them that escape is not in their favor anymore. That in fact, by escaping, they're losing out on positive reinforcers so that they can approach, approach, and approach. And really inherent in that is a constructional viewpoint. We are saying to the animal, your repertoire, which is about escape, avoid, and delay, is lacking alternatives in the presence of this aversive stimulus. I can teach you alternatives. So in my own home, and again, this is all over my writing and my teaching. So these are not part of the new ideas. The new ideas, maybe negative reinforcement is really two different continua. Mm -hmm. 
But again, I, I just heard Carl Cheney saying to me, Susan, we discussed that in 1952. Here's 14 articles. <laughs> so I do that with acknowledgement. <laughs> again, when I say I, I mean yeah, it in yeah. a very loose sense, new to me. Um, my African gray says no to my offered hand by leaning away. My uh, mini macaw, Ricky, says no to my offered hand by making a vocal sound, a squawk, a, a particular squawk, right? When I'm in front of a new baby and the mom thrusts them dangling <laughs> towards me to snuggle, the baby says no by tensing their muscles in a pull position. And I say to the mom, I'd like to reinforce that repertoire, that escape nuanced behavior. How about you hold her and let me try and build some shared reinforcers on, with her on your lap. So do we need to acknowledge these two different versions? One is where an animal comes to us with escape as their repertoire, needing to ha have us help them construct new responses to stimuli they've learned to escape versus us picking up an aversive stimulus like a hose and saying you will move into the other enclosure or you'll get hit by a very strong hose. Maybe. And if that discussion has come to the fore, that's a discussion that I don't know we were ready to have as we were moving away from preponderance of positive punishment. I mean, I remember when I started working with animals, it was around 1997, 2000. And the prevailing, I'm not going to use their names because they're still around and they meant no harm. They just didn't have the information. Uh, the prevailing experts of the time were so punishment oriented that they even were, were saying in books and writing and on the internet, if a bird bites you, this is the clipped parrot, which was the common way of keeping parrots in the day. Thankfully, we're moving past that as well. This is the important historical context against which we need yes. to ask the curious question, how did you get there in the first? Monty, how did you get to making a horse upset in the first place? He would say, well, you know, you want to see upset, try tying them down and sacking them out, hitting them with a two by four. Isn't this delicate by comparison? Nowadays, we say, oh, my God, it's so ham-handed. Get your foot off the gas pedal. We can be so much more nuanced. So those experts of the day were saying, throw the, the expression. I remember it. It's so drilled into my mind. Unceremoniously dump the parrot on the floor hard and fast. So it will never do that again. And here, who was the squad? You know, it was Steve Martin. It was Barbara Heidenreich. It was Susan Friedman. Eventually, it became Pamela Clark, Phoebe Linden, as more people started to learn the alternatives, the science of behavior change. The groundswell got bigger. For us, swelling against throwing unceremoniously, throwing the parrot who bit you on the floor. Or you can see in the early veterinarian chapters I wrote, the little 
the crumbs of what these people were advocating for. It was that this is a quote. You wouldn't give the ch a child a choice to go to school or not, would you? And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I would. I did. And my response to the child repeatedly not wanting to go to school was to go to the teacher and say, there are aversive stimuli in this environment. Help me find them so that my child will choose to come to school. Yeah. And it was a bully. Wow. So I wrote in my first veterinary chapter and to the people who say you wouldn't let a child decide whether to take a bath or not or to go to school or not. I would. I did. And this is what a behavioral approach, a constructional approach would lead me to do in that case. So fortunately, we had great effect. That original group of positive reinforcement oriented people, part of that was um, delivering the information, I believe, but this is my, my strategic analysis of how to change a world was to put out the information in the way we did. I look back on that. I feel no regret for saying to the person who said unceremoniously dumped the bird on the floor. I feel no regret to the person who said, who's passed away now, may she rest in peace. You wouldn't let a kid decide whether to go to school or not. So her point was, when you show a hand to a parrot, you don't leave without that parrot on your hand. Come hell or high water, Blood can be running down your wrist. You don't let a parrot say no. This was our version of hitting the horse with a two by four or holding a kid in an attic, yeah. right? This was our historical context in which we, the early, so we say the early disseminators were working and we were working together quite happily. We were changing. We were changing a, a, a subgroup, a subculture that was unbelievably, well, it shouldn't have been unbelievable, that was characteristically coercive, forceful, and punishing and violent to their learners. Mm -hmm. And here we are now, 25 years later, we get to say, is it time to expand on negative reinforcement to point out that whenever you let an animal say no, as Jesus once pointed out, that's negative reinforcement, that there are applications. We're gonna need a rubric. We're gonna need another guideline, right? Oh, what's the difference between a recipe, a, a diagram that helps you come to a conclusion, right? Or a guideline, we're gonna need another rubric like the rubric that is the hierarchy to elucidate for our human learners, our consultants and trainers, how we would use it, where we would use it, what the difference is between picking up that hose versus allowing the bird to lean away to signal drop your hand. And I'm, I'm excited because I see it as growth in our, we started out, there was no profession, there was no behavior analysis in, in the trainer's vernacular, or very little, can I say, right? If we're to the point now where we can be criticized for not having brought to the fore, letting animals say no by escape, avoidance, and delay, I want to celebrate yeah. that. 
I want to celebrate the people bringing it to the fore. And I want to celebrate the profession that has grown so far and so fast that we're talking about, are you kidding me? The value of certain applications of negative three, 25 years ago, I would not have dreamed we would have gotten where we are as quickly as we did. We changed an entire culture. You mean we we changed the world? That's right. One biting parrot, one refusing horse, one growling dog at a time. We did. We are. It's It's a work in progress. Wouldn't it be fun to write a list and we could have like at the end of a video cast, this rolling list of all the people who contributed to this growth, this this novel leap, this growth point, that we're at the point now where we can say, maybe an autistic child should be allowed to flap if they feel a flap. Or maybe we should say they can flap, but under certain conditions and not others, we're going to construct repertoires where they don't flap. You know, what I'm thinking is that because it has become such an important social movement, um, it's important not to, um, in the way we criticize each other's work, that we don't invalidate that beautiful growth. That's very well said. That's what I'm, that's why I went in such a wide circle, which I really adore the two of you as um, discussants and interviewers. Discussants is that sometimes an idea needs a wide pass to get to the point. And you don't always have the time, the patience, or the knowledge in the people discussing with you to make that point, you know? And the idea of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater is important. I know of a person, a professional doing that now, you know, whose whose point is to bring in more consideration, I always say, of ratness, of ethology, of, of the special, unique qualities that being part of a species does mean to us. You know, is it useful to think of horses as cold-blooded, warm-blooded? Does that give us some predictive information? Do we get some predictive information when we have a retriever versus a herder? And should we try and make, you know, uh, should we try and make retrievers not pick things up anymore? Is that not more similar to a child with autism flapping? You know, who decides, right? These are all I see this as a big convergence of Me Too, George Floyd, you know, of ethology. And and isn't the fact that it was a rat important and not just it could have been anything in that chamber. And then the other important idea that you allowed me such a wide berth for is the idea of, of context. When we criticize from a new context, do we have to burn up the old context. Sometimes I feel like we do. I mean, male domination in the corporate structure, I want it to burn. (laughs) You know, maybe I'm not the right tool for that job. On the other hand, I don't want it to burn before I have a chance to analyze how the hell did we get there in the first place? Because if we could figure out how it um, behaviorally occurred, we can do a much better job of preventing it and building new structures. So, I mean, we have really talked, as always, a huge, 
you know, and yet as interviewers, you're great because you were able to bring us back to some key yeah. points I know that you wanted to cover yeah. as well. So bravo and love to both of you for those skills. Thank you. Well, we certainly have covered a lot of ground. And there was, there was one little piece that I wanted to really flag before I take that cue as we should stop. I need to have a coffee machine down here in my webinar room. <laughs> Then I could I could last for another cup yeah, for sure. Because um, you know, I loved in the description when you were talking about the negative reinforcement, that, that constructing of, of new repertoires so that the animal learns that he does not have to be afraid of that aversive and he does not have to try and escape or avoid it. I mean that describes the teaching of rope handling beautifully that's exactly what we are doing oh yes so you are you're you have often you have horses that i mean they have had unless unless you're talking about a foal that you're raising these horses have had previous history with lead ropes and reins that is working against them yep and often it has involved a lot of escalating pressure a lot of fear a lot of pain a lot of discomfort and and that's their history that's what they're bringing. So of course, when you bring out a lead rope, you're going to, to see them become tense. You're going to see uh, avoidance behavior. You'll see all kinds of things that we are not wanting. That's not the emotional uh, response. That's not the context that we want. And so it is a process right. of teaching a repertoire of responses so that we change, really completely change the horse's response to association to that lead rope. That's what you're describing. And I think one of the things that I am enjoying these days, because for me, it fits very comfortably, is this, the language that we are getting from Gold Diamond, this, the, the language that's centered around a constructional mindset. And I have found that to be extremely useful, that we are constructing right. repertoires. It's like, yes, this is how I have been training for the past 30, 40 years. And this teasing things apart and constructing the pieces and then building, building from there instead of trying to suppress or get rid of, or you know, you're jumping in at the layer in which there was a problem that I think when you combine that with the hierarchy, it just gives, gives such a, clear structure around which to build your thinking. That's right. And it is about thinking and planning. And then the animal's behavior gives us the information we need to stick with the plan or revise what we do. At no time is any of this lockstep. And I think that the people who think it's lockstep have made one very critical mistake they look at the graphic and they don't read the supporting articles. And when you don't read the supporting articles, you don't get to hear my voice saying, you know, this is, you move up if you need to. Effectiveness is our number one still, but have a rationale. Always ask yourself, can I do it less intrusively? And if the answer is no, then you move up. But if I move up that hierarchy, I'm calling a friend. You know, before I use punishment, 
I check with the colleagues that I have to be sure that it isn't just my training failure. I don't just say, okay, I tried, it didn't, you know, so there's all that to think about and talk about. I also really like hearing when you describe it as an a constructional approach, because on a wonderful Facebook page list, I saw the other day, someone said, oh, the constructional approach, and then they, they meant negative reinforcement. And I mean, I didn't know Gold Diamond, <laughs> but he was a graduate student. I think it's the story with Carl Cheney, my current mentor. Um, they were in Arizona together or somewhere. I, I don't think he'd agree <laughs> that what he was conveying for this clinical constructional approach to clinical psychology to help people was about negative reinforcement necessarily, although it may be very much a part of empowering people to have alternatives. You know, you can run, you can avoid, you know, you cannot go to the bar where you over drink, you know, things like that. So I, I'm glad to have the forum to say, careful how we use our language. Uh, the constructional approaches we've seen so far that have been packaged for us to learn from and look at are examples of constructional approaches. We could build a constructional approach of positive reinforcement. We could build a constructional approach of every one of our consequential selectors of our antecedent influences. Right, you're constructing the repertoire and there's always more than one way to shape every behavior. There is no recipe, but there is a, a conceptual framework within which to operate. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to philosophize about because we do need from our experience to collect up bundles of procedures that have a high probability of working with the context that we see in front of us. And that we are comfortable using. Using and changing if needed, but it's not like, what was that movie with, um, oh gosh, where every day she, she lost her memory. So Uh, the mammoth, the marmot day. Every day she, she had to remember. Brooke, um, no, who was it? it it's, uh, it's in French, the, the animal is a marmot. Oh, what the Groundhog's Day. Is? But in that one, they yes. remember, I think. Oh, it's no, not the I same. thought it was when I first, oh. the other one with, um, oh, they lose, she loses they, they her memory know. and she has oh. to re-meet her okay. husband, re-meet her children, re-meet yeah, yeah, the yeah. locks on her door every single day. So on the one hand, we're not living on a planet where we've evolved to have a wipe of our memory every day and to construct a new procedure with an animal anew. We do work with our animals and learn from them so that when we go to the next one, we're not starting entirely blank. We have a history of experience that is guiding us towards one thing or another. Our species information helps guide us as well. So it's not meant to be rigid. My my latest metaphor is it's the difference between my cooking, which is entirely recipe driven and rote. That's the word we're looking for, not rote application of the recipe versus a chef. A, A chef is someone who knows all 42 different 
species of, pe of pepper, yeah. habanero, green, red, orange, etc., knows exactly what each one does in terms of the chemical reaction in the recipe and the taste and makes their decisions based on the humidity, the height, which kind of vegetables are going to go with it. Me, tell me exactly which pepper. I will buy that pepper. If they don't have it, I'll abandon the recipe. I will, <laughs> you see where I'm going? So the hierarchy should never be rote. And I think I made that, I tried hard to make that clear in my writing about it and my teaching of it. And nor are we talking about being a chef because not every zookeeper wants to go back to school to get a master's degree in behavior analysis. They already have their degree in zoology. And yet when you say it, it should never be rote, we have to remember that we are wanting to embrace the beginners. And so when you start with somebody who is brand new to training, to teaching, to working with a particular species, giving them a path to follow is important. But within that path, what we want to teach very quickly is the skill of being responsive to your learner. Study of one. Yeah. So built into that early right. teaching as quickly as possible is the, and look at what your learner is doing in response to what you just did. What changes, if any, do you need to make, you want to make as you move forward? Right. And people need teachers and mentors and supervisors. Where are they going to go when they see some body language and they don't have the tools yet to do something that might be more advanced. You know, I think about Ken Ramirez, whenever I think about how can we structure our curriculum, our dissemination, social marketing of behavior analysis, yeah. our dissemination of the science and practice in a way that's gonna work strategically. Ken at Shed had this most intricate program of beginning trainers who were not allowed to do anything except the rote delivery of reinforcers and to develop their um, skill with the reinforcement system at SHED and then go from there. I think it was a year, a year five or year seven before they could do anything on their own in response to an unexpected behavior. Yes. Holy moly. You know, and I'll just tell you one other quick story in case it illuminates these ideas for your listeners. Um, there's a very well-respected and big contributing behavior analyst named Henry Schlinger, Hank Schlinger. And I listened to a webinar for behavior analysts the other day by him, where he threw down the gauntlet and he said, um, to everybody, write in the chat what your definition of reinforced, positive reinforcement or reinforcement is. And so we all wrote, you know, I can show you literally no less than a hundred textbooks that will reflect the definition I wrote in chat. Reinforcement is the process of strengthening behavior through consequences or something like that. And then he lowered the boom. He said, that's wrong. All 50 of you listening to me, 
that reinforcers don't strengthen behavior. So I'm only glad I'm not on video because I'm sitting in my Zoom behind the black, <laughs> the black shade thinking, what the hell are you talking about? He said, reinforcers don't strengthen behavior. They strengthen the evocative effect of antecedents. And immediately I understood, of course, you know, I, I've been listening and learning for 45 years. There's no big whoop. I understood what he meant. It strengthens the cue. We've all talked about that before. Reinforces strengthen the cue and that that was demonstrable, that the definition that reinforcement strengthens behavior is circular. It cannot be demonstrated. How do you know it's a reinforcer? It's strengthened behavior. How do you know it's strengthened behavior? Because I reinforced it. Whereas his new definition that reinforcers strengthen the evocative effect of antecedents can be demonstrated. And he went on to explain that. About five days later, his brand new parenting book came in the mail. And so my, I was like so focused on this issue of who do we teach what to? Because I'm considering this criticism. Who do we teach what to? Do we teach everything at the same level to everyone? Is that going to socially market behavior analysis and improve the world? I didn't think so when I was making my strategic curriculum decisions. Ken didn't think so when he was making his strategic curriculum decisions at Chet. You don't think so when you wrote your book for your horse trainers. So, but I'm open. I'm thinking. I run to Schlinger's book, sit down on the porch, tear it apart from Amazon, go right to his index, look up reinforcement, go to whatever page it was and read his definition for parents. Did he write reinforcer strengthen the evocative effect of antecedent stimuli? No. No. He wrote reinforcement strengthens the behavior it follows through consequences. And I thought, there it is. We are all needing to make decisions about how we roll out this curriculum that at the most advanced level, you know, and I could name the mentors at the advanced level, is very hard for the rest of us to understand and not just understand, but to turn into an application. What does that mean when there's a horse in front of me? That I tell you that the carrot in your pocket is used to strengthen the evocative effect of your walk-on cue. What the yeah. hell? Are they gonna come to me to learn how to train their horse in the least intrusive way? Or are they gonna come to you? Are parents gonna go to Schlinger's webinar from the Cambridge Center or are they gonna pick up his parenting book, right? So, I think there's just a lot to think about. And I embrace the criticizers. I mean, without sounding like Pollyanna or like the 60s chick I am, the criticism allows us to improve, but it takes careful consideration, curiosity, discussion. Yeah. yeah. All the things yeah. that you really, the two of you, very deftly brought to the fore. Yeah. It's, it's, knowing, it's knowing when to stand back from the fire and let it burn. And then knowing how to go in and find those embers, those gems that are going to move you forward in your own thinking. Yeah. 
You know, I think for sure, I mean, Susan, you know, I've, I've told you so many times how much your articles have influenced me. And I do want to wish you a lot of courage and to continue to do this because, you know, for a lot of us, it's really, really important that you're out there and that you keep oh, writing. Thank you. I'm inspired. I'm inspired at this stage, 25 years looking back. I'm inspired for the next, really. I should only have the opportunity to keep learning new things and writing them down um, and working with the truly amazing people like you. I say this with absolute authenticity. I mean, how enriching, how lucky am I to have people like you to chew these ideas through with, you know? So slumber party. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Post-COVID, yes. <laughs> yeah, bring okay. the tents. And Thank you both so much for your time and your brilliance. And um, till we meet again. Yes. Au revoir. Yes. Susan says she embraces the criticism. That's yet one more reason to hold her in high esteem. It takes courage to really mean that. I have to tell you, I don't embrace criticism. And after listening to Susan, I think I understand more clearly why. I make a distinction between criticism and questions. To me, I think criticism implies a lack of a relationship, a lack of shared reinforcers. And I think of that in terms of the work that I criticize. When I'm criticizing something, you know, if I think about it, it's usually those things that I really don't know very much about. I've only just sort of dipped my toe in. But when I've really looked at someone's work, then I have questions. And there's a difference. To me, I think criticism implies a lack of relationship, a lack of shared reinforcers. But questions, questions implies there's a history between us. You've looked at my work, you've explored it, and now you're coming to me with questions. They may be tough questions that I'm going to have to really think about, and they may be questions that even prompt me to make some changes in the way that I teach, but those shared reinforcers are going to mean that the exchange feels safe for both of us, and that's definitely something that I value. I'd be really interested to hear Susan's response to that. It's something to add to our next afternoon of conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I know I'm already looking forward to the next one. So have fun unpacking all the gems she's given us and have fun with your horses. 